Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Stand Up, Speak Up, the podcast that raises awareness and encourages support to those feeling hurt, lost, or forgotten. It was definitely horrific. It was like a horror movie. But the horror of it is that you can't even kill yourself if you want to kill yourself because they take away everything that you want to kill yourself with. So even if you thought that was like a release, you don't even have that. So then the next thing is like psychological. I told, and I told my psychiatrist, I said, this is going to affect me permanently. I know it is. I'm going to have PTSD when I get out, and I'll never be the same. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast featuring those who have sometimes been left behind in the margins, highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to those who don't often get heard. I'm your guest host, Peter Anthony Holden. This is the first of a two-part episode featuring one of the most flamboyant characters from the New York club scene of the 80s and early 90s. It's a man who also became a murderer. His name is Michael Alec. In 1996, Alec lived in an apartment in Hell's Kitchen with Robert Riggs and Andre Melendez. All three men were part of a group called the Club Kids, a collection of flamboyant young people who were well-known throughout New York City's underground dance scene. They sported crazy costumes and had even crazier eccentric personalities. During an argument over drugs, Alec and Riggs brutally murdered Melendez with a hammer. They poured drain cleaner down his throat. They kept the lifeless body of their roommate in their apartment for days before finally getting butcher knives to dismember him, disposing of the body in separate locations in the river. On the club scene, Alec bragged about the murder and the gossip spread through the nightclubs like wildfire, eventually garnering the attention of the press and the police. Alec was arrested, tried, and convicted of the crime, spending 17 years behind bars. He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, all the while being the subject of articles, a movie, and a book on the outside. So how has prison changed him? Has he cleaned up his act? Has he gotten off drugs? Has this creative man, who is also a writer and a painter, put his talents to good use? That's what Carla Stevens Tolstoy wanted to find out by tracking him down to conduct a series of conversations. So we were talking a, a little bit about the documentaries and the press you've had. Uh-huh. How do you feel about all that? Like, how do you feel about all that attention on something you did 20 years ago? You know, I mean, I, it's a kind of a funny question because it, it hap- it's been happening for 30 years, and uh, so it's nothing, it's not anything new. I don't really have any feeling about it because, it's, it, like I said, it's been happening for so long. I, I never give it a, a thought one way or the other. Do you ever get concerned that the people that maybe come around or you become friends with, that there's some fascination they have with the whole thing and that they've got kind of a dark side to them and they're thinking that you're attractive for them in that regards? I mean... No, I, I think people like that are pretty easy to spot. Um, you can, I can spot them from a mile away. It's kind of a myth that that happens. It happens a lot less than 
a lot of people want to think it does. In fact, it never happens that they make it through. I kind of, you know, like I said, I can, I can spot them from a mile away and they don't get very close. Or what about people that are trying to sensationalize you? Like you? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's exactly, yeah. you know, like people that just reach out to you. Like I'm a complete stranger to you. And, yeah. you know, the only I mean, reason I heard of your story was because I just clicked on that. I'd never heard of anything about it before. I just clicked on that documentary, Glory Days. And I didn't even realize that you were a component of that. I thought it was just talking about club kids, which was kind of fascinating. Right. You know, again, if, if somebody's trying to sensationalize on it, that's kind of more on them than on me. And I think that people who are reading those stories and looking at those stories will realize that that's more on the person who's doing the story than on me. Um, and in fact, it may make people give people more sympathy toward me that, oh my gosh, look at these people trying to cash in on his story. Yeah. So, so that, that's how I feel about it. I mean, I mean, that's a little bit of how I felt watching Glory Days. Just yeah. that like was kind of what I walked away with because when I watched it, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, they're like, they're just doing this all to get reactions and get people on tape. And I felt like the people that talked about you on tape, that was also their 15 minutes of fame. You know, I, I felt that less about less about Glory Days than with um, with uh, other other ones, like even Party Monster. I think that Glory Days was actually a lot more um, fair and balanced. Well, I think it really talks about club kids, which I didn't know because I'm thinking, okay, how old are you now? 35. You're, <laughs> no, no, I was about to I'm, go, what? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm 52. Okay, so I'm just five years, so I'm 47. And I guess during that time I was living in China or Romania. So I, I'd never heard of any of this. It was all... It, because in Europe, you know, you don't pay attention to any of that stuff. No, China, they don't have they don't have crop kits. Um, well, they just it just uh, you know I just never paid attention to that kind of news. You know, it just wasn't. Yeah. So for me, I didn't even I didn't even know there was a culture called club kids. So it was kind of educational for me because I didn't even know that existed. And the whole time I was looking at at you dressed up in all these amazing outfits. It it was so creatively interesting. You know, and I felt like when I lived in Europe, they had a lot of that in their club scene already, like that kind of really utopian or unique look. So I felt it had a little bit of a European flair to it. And and so I thought that was kind of interesting just because I was like, oh, that and, and, and I couldn't believe how professional all the photo shoots were like all your photos of you. They looked so good. Like, did you have a photographer that did all that at the time or how did you get all those great shots? Um, we had a couple of photographers, but you know there was there, there was there's a European influence, of course. Um, I'm German, and and a lot of the influence came from the Blitz kids in London. So um, there 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 is a European influence, but it's also there's also a decidedly American influence in the uh, satire of fame and consumerism. Yes. And so it's kind of a combination, the mashup of um, of European and American values and I mean, sensibilities. I I think what really came out clear in that is how creative you were. Like, how did you think of all those ideas? Because a lot of your ideas were very new back then. I mean, they didn't do that kind of thing. They didn't have a Ferris wheel outside, uh, like a club. Or, like, all the stuff you did was so almost ahead of its time. I think that New York in itself is ahead of the rest of the world. So those ideas were kind of brewing up in New York City. 
Um, so they may not have been so ahead of their time in New York City. It wasn't just me. There was a group of people that all had these ideas. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a, um, um, an Outer Limits episode about somebody who invented a um, cold fusion bomb and was threatening to blow up the world. And the storyline was about how um, in science and in fashion and everything else, um, somebody comes up with an idea and because that's the way culture and society is going. And, and that, in fact, a lot of people will come up with similar ideas at the same time, like the automobile and atomic energy and things like that. A lot of scientists were coming up with at the same time because that's just where everybody was going. It was a natural like jump-off point. So I think that a lot of people in New York were probably doing about the same thing, and in London, with the Blitz kids and Lee Bowery and everything. So um, it was just something that, uh, you know, the place that culture was going. So a lot of people who were in that industry were probably going in the same direction. I would term you as extremely creative. So when you went to jail, how did you live your creativity value. I mean, that is what really inspired you to do things differently, to think out of the box, to, to really, you know, challenge conventions. I mean, so you're in this full creative environment where you're kind of blossoming and coming into yourself. And then what do you do? I guess I was allowed allowed to paint, you know, painting, being allowed to paint was a huge um, thing like that they, that they let me do that was like a very big deal to me. I don't know how um, I would have been able to cope really if I didn't have some kind of um, outlet like that. So I I feel very fortunate that they let me do that. And I could write, it was, in a lot of ways, it was was kind of like being in a, um, like in a monastery, you know, or going away and meditating. A lot of my friends pay a lot of money to go to like a, a monk, you know, to stay with monks and like do that kind of like, you know, monastery thing where they're just like, where they don't talk for a week or whatever. So it was like that, only a little bit longer. I kind of would would recommend all of my friends to do that at one point in their life, maybe not for, you know, 17 years. And the solitary confinement was a big deal for me, like um, being in solitary for so long. But again, that's something I would recommend for like a lot of my friends to do at least once a little while. One of my biggest fears is is actually going to jail. I know that sounds ridiculous, crazy, because I'm so scared. No, ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you're justified in that. Because I'm so scared that I would get in there and I'd be stuck with my thoughts full time, and I can't imagine what my thoughts would be saying to me full time. The self talk, and then I wouldn't even know how to survive. Like, I, it, it just seems like such an overwhelming experience. It, it was overwhelming, and there, you know. In the beginning, you feel like, you know, you want to kill yourself and all that, but you you get over it. You, I always kind of liken it to being in a burning building, and um, you jump out the window of the second floor, and people say, oh, you're so brave for jumping out the window, but you're not really brave. You, like, you have no choice uh, but to jump out the window. So, in, you know, in this case, you have no choice but to um, survive. I mean, your only other choice is to kill yourself, and if they, if you are not successful killing yourself, then they will put you in a place where you won't have any anything to kill yourself with, like solitary, and where they put you naked, and you're sitting on a mat, and you have no clothes, and you have no eating utensils, and you have no toothpaste, because toothpaste you could eat; it's poison. Uh, they don't let you. They don't let you have anything. So um, you don't. You can't unless you could choke yourself or whatever. You can't even kill yourself. So like, you know, if you're going to do it, you better do it, and you better be successful. 
Did you go into solitary confinement because you were suicidal or for other reasons? Both. I, you know, I, um, I was, my urine tested positive for, uh, for drugs because when I was arrested, I was addicted to heroin. And um, so, I mean, I went in addicted. So, I mean, it, it didn't surprise them that there was drugs in my, in my urine. But by the same token, they had to punish me for it. So, so I went to solitary for that. And once you're there... Once you're in solitary, it's easy to um, have your length of solitary kind of grow because every time your urine test positive, they give you another year. So it's very easy to uh, have your solitary time grow very quickly. I got up to, I think, about 10 years. The superintendent actually felt sorry for me, so he uh, reduced it to five years, but, but that was all he could. That was, you know, he was only able to reduce it to a certain point. I mean, he only had so much power to do that. And um, so, you know, they reduced it to five years. But even that was like a long time. Like what, how did you even prepare mentally? Like what, when you went, because now there's quite a few documentaries that solitary is really the worst thing you can do to someone. Do you agree with that? Do you agree like that's the lowest you can go as being in solitary? I think so. Um, yeah, I think that's the lowest you can go. I mean, it was like, it was definitely... A horror, horrific. It was like a horror movie. But the horror of it is that you can't even kill yourself if you want to kill yourself because they take away everything that you want to kill yourself with. So even if you thought that was like a release, you don't even have that. So then the next thing is like psychological. I told and I told my psychiatrist, I said, this is going to affect me permanently. I know it is. I'm going to have PTSD when I get out and I'm not, you know, I'll never be the same. And she kind of agreed with me that the people People in, in mental health are against solitary confinement. They want to outlaw it. Actually, you know, you'd be surprised to hear the people in um, mental health. The Department of Mental Health and the Department of Corrections are two different things, and they uh, are opposing each other. They don't work for the same people. They work against each other, and they hate each other. So you're kind of like in the, stuck in the middle of two opposing sides. You have, on the one hand, the Department of, of Corrections, which wants to punish you, and then the Department of Mental Health, which wants to rehabilitate you. And um, they both have different ways of, different ideas of how that should be done. And um, so you, you feel kind of like a pawn in their war, and they're like a tug of war, and they're like tugging back and forth. And right now, it seems like the Department of Corrections is winning. Well, you know, it's, it's a tie, actually, because if they had their way, that you know, there would be no Department of Mental Health and there would be no time cuts and there would be no, you know, they have different levels of mental health. And if you're a level, it's one through seven. Seven is the most healthy and one is the most insane, I suppose. And if you're a level one, they're very limited as to what they can do to you. They can, for instance, not put you in solitary confinement if you're level one. If you're level two, they can only put you in solitary confinement for 30 days. So um, I struggled very hard to get to level two, and I got there by swallowing um, a battery I swallowed, and then I swallowed a spork, a plastic spork, and then I swallowed um, toothpaste. I made a sandwich of toothpaste. And then what, what actually got me to the level two is I swallowed 120 ibuprofen, which had acetaminophen in it, which I didn't realize how dangerous it was. Um, but my psychiatrist kept telling the, the superintendent that 
you have to release him because he's doing all these things. And the superintendent said, well, he's doing it for attention and he's doing it because he wants to get out of solitary. And my psychiatrist said, well, duh, you know, of course he is. But um, eventually he's going to do something that's going to be irreversible or, or worse. So you have to take that into consideration. So the pills was, was what finally did it because it made them take me to the outside hospital. You know, when you're in the hospital, you're not supposed to talk to anybody. You're not supposed to talk to anybody, really. But I had to talk to the doctor. And when the doctor asked me why I'd swallowed the pills, I told him it was because I was in solitary confinement and I couldn't take it anymore. The officers who were with me looked at me and I told the doctor, I said, and I'm afraid to go back to the facility now because I just told you that. And the officers, there's going to be retaliation when I go back. In that situation, who did you have to get along better with? The authorities, the guards, the, the warden, or the other inmates? Like, what was the higher? Well, you're in solitary, so you don't have contact, you don't have connection with the other inmates. So it's just purely you're trying to just get along with the guards and... Yeah. And how do you do that? But how do you get along with them? By not causing any trouble, by not crying and screaming and banging and stuff like that. And by telling the doctor what I just told him, that was kind of it. Like, that was the worst thing I could have done. So I told the doctor I was afraid to go back. And after that, the doctor made a report and he, he, he said that when I go back, uh, that there has to be a camera on me at all times because he's afraid that there will be retaliation for what I said and that if anything happens to me and there's no footage of what happened, that the facility will be responsible, uh, they'll be culpable for whatever happened. And it became so expensive to um, house me there because of that, that they let me go. Did you have some really kind guards? Like, did you have people in there that were really you know, kind and good people, or there's a, was there yeah. more of a, were they all no, very aggressive? Most of them were kind, actually. Most of them, they don't agree with solitary confinement. I mean, anybody who, like, sees it up close kind of can't really agree with it because it's so awful. Um, and they were always saying things like, you know, I don't know how you're doing this. We would never be able to do this. And so there's a lot of sympathy there. So when you were in the solitary environment, I mean, solitary confinement, I mean, I, I agree with you, that would be horrible. I mean, there's so much research done that it's the worst thing. It's like an extreme form of torture. So that's not nothing to do with healing. It's pure, just making yeah, and you crazier. They, um, the, the officers actually felt so sorry for me that they let me out a lot of times, even when I wasn't supposed to. Like, they would let me out. Sometimes, like, on, on holidays, like on the 4th of July, they would let me out to, like, share in their barbecue and stuff like that. I think also because I was, I hate saying it, but because I'm white, because I know how to speak, you know, I can form a sentence and I would say please and thank you and that kind of thing. I think they felt kind of a kinship toward me, like they could um, empathize with me more than they could maybe with some of the other inmates. I was more like maybe their son or their grandson and they like hated that, seeing me like that. So I think that that uh, helped me in that way. You know, and that, then I felt guilty. I felt bad for the other inmates. And I know they hated me then because they saw me like out, like having deer was a big thing because they wouldn't shoot the officers would shoot deer and they would have like these barbecue deer barbecues and stuff like that. So the, although I didn't, I don't eat deer, eat meat, but the other inmates would see me, you know, out with the officers having barbecue and like stuff like that. And I know they hated me because of it. What were the other inmates, inmates like? I mean, you came in um, educated, well-spoken, good looking. I mean, how did that fare for you going into 
into Rikers. That's where you went first, was Rikers? Yes. You know, like, they hated me. They, like, the other inmates hated me. And I thought sometimes that they were going to kill me. You know, they just, they hated me. They were jealous because I, they thought that I was, you know, getting some kind of white privilege, which in some cases I was. Um, they also thought that I was getting a, a lower, a lesser sentence because I was white. I don't know if that's the case. A lot of people say that I got a, a larger sentence. But, you know, they were saying, you know, if I would have been black or Spanish, I would have been given life or whatever. I don't know if that's the case, but that's what they felt. So, so you know, they hated me for that. And they hated me also because I got so many packages and so many visits and so many, you know, the media would come and like talk to me and like they hated that because they felt that they had so much to say and there was so, there was so much um, unfairness that they wanted to talk about. And then when the media comes and talks to me, we're talking about things that don't really matter to them, like, like stuff we're talking about. And they felt like they had real stories, like that they were beaten by the police and that they were like, you know, whatever. So they see me talking about what they think is really superficial and like that just hate, make them hate me more. And it, it made them think that, you know, white culture doesn't care about them. And, you know, what do you think were your five worst experiences in jail? And what were your five best experiences? And I, I know there's no good experience in jail. But yeah, well, no, there were, but, but I mean, five, five, I, I don't think we have time for that, but I mean, I can give you like the, the worst, you know, like probably the worst was I overdosed on acid in the visiting room one day. I thought I was going to die and, and I had to go to the hospital and have my stomach pumped and I was very scared and I didn't, when I came to, I didn't know my name and I didn't know, I, you know, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to tie my shoe. I didn't know what a light bulb was. It was like, it was very scary. I was in an observation room for a long time, naked and sitting on a mat and, you know, in a glass room, all four walls glass with people just watching you from all sides with cameras on you. And like, you know, it was just an awful experience. But other times, you know, good experiences, I don't know. I Well, it's weird then, because the kind of the same experience. Right after the overdose, instead of punishing me, the superintendent called me in to his office and had a very nice talk with me about my father and you know, what happened to me and why did I turn out this way and um, what could he do? And, you know, I mean, it was, he honestly cared. I thought that was unbelievable, you know, and it kind of reaffirmed my faith in humanity. And um, I mean, he asked me all the right questions and he was going in the right direction about what, what was wrong and how it all happened and everything. And he, he genuinely cared and he, any, any, any trouble I would have gotten into over it, he um, squashed. And he said, when he's doing it, he said, I don't know whether I'm doing you a favor or a, or a disfavor by doing this. Because, you know, on the one hand, I don't, you know, you've been through enough and I don't want to see you getting into any more trouble than you're already in. On the other hand, if I, if you don't get punished for it, I don't want you to think that this is, this kind of behavior is okay. And then you do it again. And, you know, in another facility where maybe they're not so lenient and then you get in more trouble than I feel responsible for it. So, you know, you can, I could tell that he genuinely cared about, you know, what he was doing and the consequences of his, um, of his actions and stuff like that. So that was kind of, you know, kind of a nice thing, I guess. Carla, explain to us the popularity of the club kids and, and who they were. The club kids were really what today would be seen as almost the first of reality shows. 
They were bigger than life personalities. They were kids that came from all over the U.S., such as Michael, who came from a smaller city and came into New York City. And they brought probably the earliest concept of gender fluid. And that means that you could be androgynous, you can look male, you can look female, you could dress up in really crazy costumes. And all of it was to create excitement and a really, I would say, provocative environment within the clubs in New York City. And they actually became like quite famous. Like if you think they were like the earlier days of before, you know, Paris Hilton became famous. They were even before that. They were probably, um, what I would say is they almost founded the beginnings of a reality show where you follow interesting people. And everybody wanted to be around them because it was always party time. Because that was their job. They got paid to party and to bring people to their party. And they got paid to be outrageous. And they were on tons of talk shows. They were always written up in newspapers and magazines. They were probably the definition of cool. Carla, you mentioned that they were on several shows. It just so happens that we have a clip from one of those shows. This goes back to 1992 with Michael on with a panel of other club kids on Geraldo, where he talks about flash parties that he organized, where he actually got arrested. I was arrested because of you, Geraldo. <laughs> we did an outlaw party in a building in Chicago. And, um, in Chicago? Yeah, at, the, at this one hotel that you well, did. What did I have to do with it? Lexington. Well, it was the Lexington Hotel. Oh, where Al Capone's vault was yeah, located. Right. And you did a show about the vault that was hidden in the hotel, so me and John Boy did an outlaw party in the hotel looking for that vault. Okay, now we have some video of an outlaw party. Run it uh, and uh, tell us uh, what an outlaw party is, Michael. Uh, we invite about you know, 1,500 people to a subway station or, or an abandoned hotel where there's a vault hidden or a Burger King or a McDonald's, and we set up a bar and a sound system and have a party until the police come. And how long does it take for the police to come? Well, in the case of the Lexington Hotel, it was about 15 minutes. This one was about Chicago PD, minutes. they're pretty good. Five minutes, this one right here? No, 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Police are really slow in New York. What, what's your future going to be like, Michael? Um, gosh, I don't know. I'm sort of like living for right now, for, you know, for now, right now. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. The, you know, the world could end tomorrow, and I want to make sure I'm having fun right now. So you heard the clip, Carla. What's your response? I think that what they did was pretty incredible and probably gave way to, like, our culture of saying it's okay to be different. I mean, I really think there's a lot of credit owed to this this early group of club kids. And I think that the scene today has gotten really boring. And I think that um, it's sad to think that those many years ago, um, it was a lot more exciting than it is today. Well, you have the uh, Stand Up, Speak Up apparel store, and you said earlier that Michael and the club kids were very outrageous, very flamboyant in their clothing and their characters. I'm kind of curious as to how your designs were inspired by Michael's journey. Well, you know, there's two sides to Michael. There's the club kid um, who was innovative and, you know, stepped out of his comfort zone got other people excited to step out of their comfort zone. And then there's the Michael that did too much drugs and murdered someone. So what inspired me in some cases was part of our don't collection. And our don't is, you know, my son, 17, who's the co-founder of the store, created about don't 
shoot heroin is one of his shirts that he came up with. And that pertains to Michael, like just don't shoot heroin because that that led him to a very dark life. Another don't shirt that was kind of inspired by him was don't end up in jail. Like, just not a good idea. And another one that inspired him, don't steal from a drug dealer. I mean, these are all the things that Michael did. And it's just also saying, like, try not to do crazy shit because it's never going to end up in a good situation. But then there's the other Michael that was really the whole gender fluid area. And we actually have a shirt that says, be fluid. And that really stemmed from them just being so outspoken about that area. We also have a shirt that says, yes, I am gay, get over it. And I think that they were just really all about, I don't care if you're uncomfortable with me being gay or different. That's not my problem. That's your problem. And another shirt that I thought was very much like Michael was don't be afraid to be yourself. And that's one of our other shirts. So there was lots of things that from talking to Michael, it kind of just had some aha moments for me. And then I went back with my son, Zach, and we started to develop some of the inspiration from my interview with Michael. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Since Michael himself is an artist and he has art shows, how do you think he'd feel about the apparel that is inspired by him? Um, I think that... He would see that as a positive if it had a positive message to it. I mean, his art is really is really interesting. I mean, I actually do love his art. It's very colorful. It's very unique. These are more like statement T-shirts, not art T-shirts, although we do have an artist collection. Um, Michael is not in one of our current collections, which I, I would love him to join one of our collections because I think he is very talented. But I think that Michael would agree with all those. He'd be like, yeah, don't shoot heroin. Yeah, don't steal from a drug dealer. He'd be like, yeah, those are really obvious things. Don't do that because I did those things and I ended up in jail. Well, before we get to the second half of this program, can you explain to us a little bit of where one can find the apparel that you're talking about? Yeah, you can go to www.standupspeakupapparel.com. Um, you can go into the collection, the Don't collection, and also the other collection, Demand Equality. And you know what? If anything, these shirts are really fun to just cruise and look at some of the some of the designs by amazing artists, and and look at some of the text that is just very, I would say, provocative. And I think that's what the club kids were and still are provocative. Thanks, Carla. And we'll dive right into relationships in the second half of this show featuring Michael Alleg as Carla starts off by asking about forming relationships behind the prison walls. Did you create any lasting friendships, friendships you still have while you were in there? Or did people come and go? Was it very transient? Like, how did you build relationships? It was transient, especially for me because they had me... Um... When you go in for, um, to be categorized, you have to take a test. And I didn't know it, but that test would determine 
where you are housed and how you're treated and everything for the rest of the time. I didn't realize at the time what it was, but that test, I did very well on it because I have this like kind of uh, teacher's pet mentality where I like want to show them that I'm, I'm a good student and I'm, I studied and I did my homework and whatever. So I did so well on it that they uh, thought I was a genius and they put me in a category called CMC, which is controlled movement category. And they moved me every eight months because they thought if you're in that category, they think you're so smart that you will figure out how to escape if you get to know the facility too well. So every eight months they moved me so that I couldn't get to know anyone or anything too closely. So no, I didn't really get to make any lasting friends or anything. I don't know if this is a comfortable question, but did you ever fall in love when you were in jail? I did, and um, and they were very nice about it. They, the, the, my the psychiatrist was very good about it, like in keep making sure that we were, you know, spent time with each other and uh, were housed close to each other. And even when I got transferred. They transferred him with me because they thought that it was good for me to have somebody who cared about me with me. And he, we were together for about nine of the years that I was in there. And then he came home, and I, I guess he went back. He's married, and he has kids and everything. So, no, it wasn't. Nothing was going to come of it. Did have you seen him since? Have you? No, he's back in prison. But have you visited him or? No, I don't think I would be. I, I don't think I'd be allowed to. Yeah, but I haven't even tried. What was that like to have him and then lose him? And you're still there. Well, it was awful. I mean, I was, you know, and again, the officers were very nice about it. Like when he was ready to leave and packing up everything, they passed notes back and forth between him and me so that we could communicate. What did you love about him? What was it about him um, that, well, that you gave your I heart to him? Because when I met him, he was only 18 and I, I was 29. He didn't know who I was. So I knew that he liked me for the right reasons. It was unusual for me to meet somebody who didn't know who I was. Just, just that fact alone was, it was different for me and, um, and made me realize that he, you know, this was, he was, and he's from like upstate New York, like from some like, you know, country bumpkin town. And like, so he, he had no idea anything about what I was or anything like that. So that was a good sign. And, um, and then, and then when he found out who I was, he, uh, it was actually, um, he actually didn't like it. So he didn't like the fact that I was, you know, known or whatever, because he thought that I would never, we would never be able to have a relationship because we were so different, you know, but, um, I, but I, I enjoyed having somebody, you know, a relationship with somebody who was that, that different for me. And when you say he's married, did he marry a woman or did he? <laughs> he was married when he was arrested. Married that young? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's how they are in those places. You know, okay. So, okay, so that was your that was your one love. Is there anybody that you became quite close to, or a mentor, or somebody that you could talk um, to, or? There was a sergeant who was a club kid. <laughs> he used to be a club kid. Um, and um, it's just weird. He said that you know we both ended up in the same place, <laughs> but like for different reasons. And um, he, like, watched me for a very long time. And even when I went to different facilities, he would call the superintendent and let them know before I got there to kind of, like, watch over me and make sure that nothing happened to me. And, um, you know, that I'm basically a good person, that my crime may seem 
you know, horrific, and it is horrific, but um, that I'm not, that he should, that not to judge me. Because, you know, a lot of times, and for good reason, the um, superintendents and the sergeants, whatever, they do judge you by your crime, and they treat you accordingly. He just wanted to make sure that I was not judged for that crime solely because I'm, that one crime doesn't define who I am. You know, it was good. I, I appreciated that he did that. Were you able to go to school when you were there or? Um... No, there's something, there's something about New York State that doesn't allow that. I'm not sure why. Um, but some facilities do allow it. But most facilities for some in New York State, for some weird reason, don't um, you to go to school. Did you um, have a job in jail? Was there something you did, like something? Yes. I, um, for a little while I had a job. But like I said, because I was moved so often, it didn't bother giving me one because um, because I would just be taken away from it, you know. But um, for a little while, I, I did. I made the because um, I was the only one who had gone to college, so they gave me a. They had these like fire escape plans thing, like the, the things with the blueprints, the building, and like you are here, and then showing you where to go for if there's a fire. They had me um, making those, which gave me access to like the floor plans of the facilities and stuff like that. And then I made the I made the plant the fire escape plans that, that get hung up everywhere, and I was the only person who, the only inmate they had doing that in a very long time because I was the only one who could understand how to do it. So they didn't want to lose me. And one time when I was supposed to be transferred, they um, didn't transfer me because they didn't want to lose that me with doing that job. How accessible were mental health medication? Like, were you given anything to manage anxiety? Did you have anxiety? I mean, you had. They don't, you know, they don't believe in, in New York State, they, they don't believe in medicating anxiety in any way. So there is no uh, anxiety. Well, when I say in any way, I mean, no, no benzodiazepam, no, no Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, anything like that. It's just not allowed in New York State. How do, but the drugs do get in. I mean, you, you said you had addiction issues while in the jails. Like, is it quite easy to access them or is it? Is it a lot yeah, of effort? Yeah, it is. There are drugs all over the place. And the guards um, know that and they accept it because that's just a reality? They, yeah, there's nothing they can do about it. Did you go through periods where you were sober or you didn't take anything? Like, or like, would you kind of go back and forth with accessing drugs versus not? I mean, how did you deal with all that? No, I was, I was on drugs the whole time, really up until like the last year and a half. I mean, I mean, I feel like if I was in jail... I would need to have something. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I deal with yeah. it. Yeah, I, that's how that's how I felt. And how do how, what type of currency do you use to buy the drugs? Do you have to get cash to them, or how does that work? Um, normally, that's how it works. But um, I didn't need to do that because um, when I was arrested, there is like the, the bloods uh, control the drugs in prison because of who I was. The leader of the bloods, who um, was white, which is the first time that a white person was the leader of the place in a long time. But uh, this person, his name is Joseph, he just happened to be the person who was supplying the ecstasy to all the drug dealers who were taking them to my club. So he knew who I was. And he told the um, bloods in all the, in all the other facilities to um, give me free drugs the whole time I was there. So wherever I went, they just gave me free drugs, which was kind of good news, bad news, because I got all the drugs I wanted, but, I, but also my urine kept testing uh, kept testing uh, so I would get in trouble for it and then I would go to solitary and then they would bring it to me in solitary 
Well, did they, did they have good rehab programs in jail? Like, how would they help somebody get through an addiction? Like, what type of programs do they offer? It was like a 12-step program, but they take the um, religion part out of it. Do you have faith? Are you religious? I don't know if I'm religious. I would say I'm spiritual. Did you become more spiritual in jail or before you went to jail? No. So it just um, stayed with you from when you were young. Did you grow up in a religious? Yeah. Did you grow up in a religious family or? No, I mean I'm German, so. Like, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Enough but, said. I know. Uh, did Did you ever visit Germany? A lot of times. My family's from there, so you know. My husband's Russian, but he was born in Germany. Mm-hmm. And I've been there many times because I lived um, in the Czech Republic for eight years. And so uh-huh. I, I would go to Germany a lot. I really love, I love Europe. It's my favorite place. So what about getting visitors in? How, how would that work? Would you, like how many of your friends from the early days or family continued with you for the whole time? Uh, what do you mean? How many of them would come visit or send gifts? Or uh, how, I mean, how many of them? I don't, I can't give you a number. I mean, a lot of them, um, I, you mean at once or what do you no, mean? No, I, I just mean like how, how involved was your family and friends with you and visiting you at, at jail and providers? I mean, providers? they were more involved probably than most. Um, I mean, they were, they were pretty involved. I mean, you know, I got a lot of visits and my family was very involved. I, I mean, I felt fortunate in that way. And a lot, you know, a lot of mail, like sometimes the mail cart would come down and it would be full of mail and they would all be for me and the other inmates would get upset about that. Some even were very suspicious and thought that like having me there meant um, like they wouldn't get any mail ever because like I was there. So like, I don't know, I don't know, understand exactly what they meant by that, but they would blame me for not getting any mail. What percentage of the jail population would you say have mental health issues? At least 50. At least 50 of them. Yeah. And do, you, do would they get the proper medication or do they self-medicate with drugs? Like, how does that work? Do they get... I mean, if they wanted to get help, the help is there. But they, a lot of them are just trusting of the help. And they feel like they're paranoid, which is part of the mental health, part of their mental issue, you know. So they don't trust the system well enough to get the, to get the help. Did you journal while you were there? Did you have a diary? Did you do anything like that? I did. And I'm, I have... A, some, a lot of great stories for a book that I will write eventually when I have when everything calms down and like I have the time to do it. Let's flip to you getting out of jail and you go back into the world and a lot had changed. What were the biggest changes you saw? I guess the internet. The internet is a big was a big thing. And you know, it was kind of like living in another reality, like another universe, like an alternate universe because the World Trade Center was was still there, but it was a different World Trade Center, and Times Square was there, but it was a different Times Square, and you know, so it was like New York, but not New York. It was it was a little bit like Twilight Zone, you know, just people's mentality was was different. What when you first yeah. got out, what did you want to do? Is the first thing? Eat. They took me to Starbucks, you know, coffee. <laughs> when you were in jail and you were getting ready, what did you think you were going to go out and do for career? Like. What was in your mind or your vision for what you were going to do post-jail? I don't know. I don't really know how to do a whole lot of things other than what I do. So, I, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. Honestly, I didn't realize that there would be this much attention because I was in solitary right before I came out. So I didn't realize that there was even like a bidding war between like the New York Times and Vice and, and Newsweek about it. They were all trying to get the story. I didn't even know that. 
Did you find that encouraging, overwhelming? What, what did you think of that? It was encouraging and overwhelming, yeah. So now, okay, I've gone and looked at all your art. It's amazing. I mean, you, you are an amazing artist. I just loved, you know, your Andy Warholist and some of your stuff. So did you start right away and doing your art? Like, what was your first job getting out? That's a good question. Um, yeah, a friend of mine who's a doctor um, uh, hired me to, like, make a clothing line. And um, uh, he was partnering with my clothing line, and he put me on salary at his doctor's office. I wasn't doing anything in his doctor's office, but the idea was that I could work on a clothing line because I had a salary, and my parole certain required that I had a salary. So that 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 settled that requirement so that I could work on a clothing line. Wait, what? What clothing line is this? Do you still have? Do you still do the clothing line? I, I haven't. It hasn't come out yet. I'm I'm working on an Indiegogo right now to finish paying pay for it because he paid for most of it, um, and we we're about twenty five thousand dollars short. So I need to um, make an Indiegogo to finish it. And what is it? Tell me a little bit about this project. It's called Scrottleface, and it's um, it's kind of like an edgy kind of clothing line that features my artwork as designs and hoodies and kind of like the bodies of like an art, like Armani Exchange bodies, like slight kind of slim fit bodies, but with more of a street feel to it. How did you even get that idea, or how, like where do you even know where to begin with something like that? Well, I mean, it's kind of, it was kind of like an obvious thing that I should do because of my artwork and my background. I mean, either fashion or art or something, you know, so it was just kind of an obvious move, I thought. And where, where are you looking to sell it? Like, are you going to, is your, is your goal one day to have a store and it's there? And... I don't know about a store, but, I, but I, you know, it'll, it'll be sold online. My goal is to be in the next, uh, the next cool trade show in um, February in Los Angeles. So I'm hoping to have something ready by then. So you've been selling your artwork, and how's that been going? Yeah, my artwork has been what's, what I've been surviving on. And in fact, I have this big show planned for Los, Los Angeles on December 2nd, and I hope I don't have to um, cancel it. I'm, I'm, I'm really, that's why all these people are over in art right now, because we are all kind of like, it's an emergency meeting, and we're all kind of like deciding what's going to happen now. In fact, whether I should just surrender on Monday or um, have a lawyer contact my probation officer and say, we're, you know, Michael's weighing his options and he wants to know what, what the options are and we want to go before a judge. Do you ever just think to yourself, like, God, I can't take this anymore. Like, it's just too much coming at me. Like, why can't I get any breaks? I've been thinking that all day long. I haven't been, but today I've been thinking that all day long. That's why I feel very fortunate that I have uh, this group of friends that are here right now that was able to mobilize on such short notice and come over and, um, and help me through this. And were they friends pre-jail um, or yes. ones you met? Okay, so it's like the same gang kind of that has rallied around you. Yes. And have you gone out to see the current New York club scene? Like, how do you feel about it now? Yeah, I go out all the time. Um, it's, you know, it's boring. <laughs> it's not edgy, it's boring. That's I thought exactly, you know what, when I was watching it and I was thinking about you and I thought, oh my God, he must think that New York is so boring and yeah, that, it is. Because it, it, probably everybody even looks bored, right? That's what you'd probably think. Well, we looked bored too, but so it was for a different reason. We were fabulously bored. Um, these people are actually bored. And so do you ever want to, do you, would you ever want to go and start an, a, a club? We were actually excited, but pretending to be bored. They are bored <laughs> pretending to be excited. Yes, I, know. I think you're right. I think you're right. And what do you think? What do you think of the music now and the fashion? Uh, it, uh, it's just the same thing. It's kind of like it hasn't really progressed. It's like the same 
you know, the same thing it was. Do you want to just maybe have something, maybe we can like sign off on something kind of um, where you can kind of control the message. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, know, I, you know, I think it's important to say that no matter what happens, I feel I'm, I'm still very fortunate and grateful to even be alive that I, you know, things could have happened another way. I could have been the one who died that day. And whatever I'm going through right now, I'm lucky to be able to be going through it because at least I'm alive and able to still live out my dream to a certain point, to a certain extent. Carla, this is the first of two shows dealing with Michael Alec, and you did several interviews with him. Was it difficult trying to just corner him to sit down and, and talk to you? It was extremely difficult. Uh, it took a lot of times of me calling him, trying to get hold of him. Michael lives more of a transient lifestyle, which makes it difficult to find him. Not always does he have his phone or have it turned on or, or paid his bill, perhaps. So I did find it a challenge. And when I did get hold of him, a lot of times he was busy doing something else. It could be just nervous energy that being interviewed, he can't sit still. So sometimes it was hard to get the the voice quality as good because, you know, he'd be like folding his laundry or he'd be like organizing stuff in his kitchen or he would be managing other things on his computer. So it definitely was not always an easy process. And my goal was to actually try to connect with him, you know, every month for six to 12 months to see the progress he's made. And I just, I just realized pretty early on that probably wasn't realistic. He also seemed to have a lot of people around him and uh, lots of things going on. Like he, he just can't seem to focus on one thing at any given time. I mean, I think some of the, the demons that he's battling is addiction. And I, I just think it's very hard. I mean, he was in an environment in jail with solitary, which I think is the worst torture on anyone you can do. I mean, I'm just shocked at how intelligent he was able to to stay and articulate. I mean, he's very well read. He he is probably has a higher intelligence than many people, which I think would have been very lonely for him in jail as well, because he's also got a very academic, um, like studious side to him. But I think that the whole addiction issue is a real problem. When you did the interview, he seemed to have a bit of an entourage around him. But do you think they were true friends or, or just hangers-on? I mean, I think that Michael would say they were true friends. But I think beneath it all, I think he would he would also say that he feels alone. I don't think anybody, any of his friends, can ever relate to his life experiences. So I don't know how deep that friendship can go. I mean, it's just been so different. He's had addiction issues. He's killed someone. He spent most of his adult life in prison. He's coming out to a whole new world here. So I think that he is very lonely. I, I think he'll be lonely for life. Well, he did mention in the interview that he could spot a mile away someone who was sincere as a friend and someone who was just using him for his notoriety. Did you believe him when he said that? I think it gets confusing because I think it goes both ways. I think that Michael knows what people expect from him in order for him to get stuff from them, whether that's free housing, whether that's 
buying his artwork, whether that's by supporting him financially. Uh, I think that it's a real two-way street, though, so he might be able to assess early on because he's very intuitive, but I think also he knows how to use that to his advantage. I mean, he's really quite intelligent and pretty aware how to get people engaged by him and get people to help and support him. Thanks, Carla. We have another episode featuring Michael Alleg that you can listen to right after this one. In the meantime, we end this episode with music that is quite apropos for the topic at hand. It's a song called Evil I Know by Ascot Royals. It was originally written about how in the absence of public dialogue between different political and social camps, we all retreat to our sides and rely on the evil we know. We hold on to our opinions and prejudices instead of trying to talk about our problems as human beings. Here's Evil I Know. People are crazy these days, drawing lines in the sand, something I don't understand. Overconfident in their ways, screaming when there's nothing to say. Shake my head, you take my hand, we disconnect and we're singing. Am I imagining the true lie? Guilty on the inside, drowning on the evil I know. Evil I know. Turn around, walk away Shake your head, take my hand Disconnect to a singing Nothing's ever wrong if we never face it Nothing ever hurts when we numb the pain We can drown it out with a levy breaking Start all over again My image in the truth
Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.